Well, hey guys, welcome back to the show. Hope you guys are having a great holiday season. I know stuff can get really crazy this time of year with, you know, gifts and, you know, family obligations and travel and some of y'all are still out there trying to fill some tags. Um, but I hope that you're having a great time and, you know, not to be cliche, but I hope that you're having some time to slow down, uh, maybe get by yourself and kind of reflect on the real meaning of the season, which of course is, um, we are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, our savior. So I want to make sure that in all the chaos and hubbub that we're making time for him and, um, you know, uh, glorifying him and all we say and do with our families and um around our friends and everything so anyway i hope you guys will enjoy this holiday season and i have a really cool podcast this week um i'm gonna be totally honest with you guys when i lined this up i wasn't that excited about it (laughs) just to be completely honest but actually it turned out to be like one of my favorite conversations i've had so far and uh my guest was so interesting that like i just you know, I found myself just asking question after question after question and just kind of going down different rabbit holes and stuff. And, um, so it's a little bit all over the place, but it's a, it's just a free flowing conversation that, um, I thought was extremely interesting and just opened up a whole kind of Pandora's box of different stuff that I've been thinking about. And so I think I'm going to have my guests back on at some point because it was just really interesting. And, um, it's kind of a, even though there is, more, um, and I'll just go ahead and mention my guest this week is Hank Shaw, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you're familiar with him or not, but he's an extremely accomplished, uh, wild game chef. He's been on meat eater and other TV shows, worked with other, you know, famous chefs like Andrew Zimmern and, um, different, different folks and, um, very knowledgeable, um, also an adult onset hunter and someone who, you know, as we get into an episode, you know, I I started hunting just because my dad got me into it, and it was just a love of being outside and just a love of actually hunting animals. Um, and then I kind of started more and more to appreciate the meat and the cooking aspect of it and the providing for my family aspect of it later in life as I got you know into my hunting career. But um, one of the driving forces, if not the driving forces behind Hank getting into hunting was just because he wanted to eat and cook and prepare these wild game animals that you just simply can't get any other way. So it's a really interesting way and kind of unique way that he entered into hunting very different from pretty much, I'd say maybe all of my guests or, you know, certainly most of my guests. Um, so it's a really interesting, uh, conversation and he's like i said very knowledgeable about all things wild game meat i mean he's got a podcast where he talks about just the different intricacies of different birds and the ages of the animals you're taking and the the diets and the habitats and just a really analytical biological approach to um you know it's just it's so much more than just cooking and you know for more and more of us you know the enjoying of the meat and the sharing of the meat, especially around the holidays with family, is is a is just a, a new and kind of growing aspect of why we love what we love to do. And so, I think it's a really cool uh, conversation, very apropos to this time of season we're in, because I think many of us have freezers full of meat right now and might be having some holiday um, 
you know, gatherings and stuff like that, some opportunity to share some of your harvests and your kills with, uh, with those you love and with friends. So I hope this episode inspires you to, uh, you know, do something more than just kind of grinding up all your meat and throwing it in chili or something. Nothing wrong with chili or like spaghetti sauce or any of that, but there's just a lot that can be done with wild game. And there's just a whole other level of pride and, and fun we can have with it. If you just, um, will allow yourself to go there. So hope this episode inspires you. Like I said, I'm going to have Hank back on and do some more deep dives and some really cool stuff. I think about like, you know, making, uh, cured meats or sausages or, uh, that kind of thing. So, but this is just kind of to get things going. Um, and as we mentioned in the episode, he's releasing a holiday recipe tomorrow, actually. And if you go to his website, he has tons of, I mean, I think thousands literally of recipes. He also has a podcast, um, and, uh, just a lot of cool content and maybe some inspiration, some, some ways to think about wild game and preparing and sharing wild game that you may not have considered before. So, this episode really got me fired up, not going to lie, and I hope it does the same for you guys, and I hope you will you know, go into the holidays and, and maybe plan a special meal with friends and family and let this inspire you. So without rambling on too much more, um, please do, if you haven't yet, leave me a rating or a review. You can uh, think of it as your Christmas present to me. It would be awesome if you leave me a rating or a written review, especially on Apple Podcasts. And if you do that, I will be on the lookout and I will send you some swag in the mail for your time. So please do that. And uh, coming up on my 100th episode, too. It's been a crazy journey. I appreciate everyone's support who's been following along. Um, Another thing you could really do to help me out is share the episode. Please share the episode on your social media. Um, Send them to friends and family. Like All these things um, not only help to get the word out, but help the algorithms and all that. So please, like, if if you really if you like what's going on here, if you like what I'm doing, this show takes a lot of work to put together. Um, you know, please just leave me a writing uh, or a written review or a five star rating or both, and share this episode on your social or with friends or family, and look at it as your Christmas present to me. I'd really appreciate it. And like I said, coming up on the hundredth hundredth episode, I have a really cool special guest lined up that you guys are not going to want to miss. Um, am going to be making a huge, huge announcement on the 100th episode that you don't want to miss either, and I'm super excited with sharing with that with you guys. I've been really busy working on it, and I'm excited about it. Um, it's a big deal. So hang in there. Keep supporting me. Keep supporting the show. I really appreciate you guys. Have a Merry Christmas. Remember the reason for the season and uh, enjoy your friends and family and maybe cook something special and share it with them this holiday season so let's just jump in here with hank shaw enjoy all right guys i am here this week with my guest uh wild game chef hank shaw how you doing man i'm doing pretty good how are you doing I'm doing great, doing great. Um, and where where are you located right now? I am in uh, sunny but slightly chilly Sacramento, California. Okay, nice. And I think I heard you spent some time in Virginia, didn't you? I did. I lived in both Fredericksburg and Richmond for a bunch of bunch of years. Actually, I really really enjoyed my time there. Okay, cool. What what brought you there? Is that 
career stuff or yeah yeah i uh i worked i was an editorial page editor for the potomac news in in prince william county and then i became the capital bureau chief in richmond for um the fredericksburg freelance star okay cool um so i'm i'm in virginia i um i grew up in virginia beach and now i'm in centerville which is up near dc in northern virginia yeah yes two, two areas of virginia that are kind of virginia but not exactly <laughs> yes and they're interesting they, they're both kind of like on the fringes like they're like at the extremes like one like you said yeah one's very much a beach town like and lots it's of really military yeah, yeah it's, it's very navy. military and um <laughs> yeah and it's weird like it's kind of a weird area like i was talking to somebody the other day it's like it's less of a town and more so just like a bunch of shopping centers strung together with Centerville? apartments in between. No, Virginia Beach. Oh, Va Beach, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird. And then, yeah, and then up here. That's Loudoun County, isn't it? Uh, Fairfax. Fairfax, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, so, and up here is like the very liberal kind of metropolitan-ish. I'm sort of in the suburbs, but very close to the, you know, super, um, you know, metropolitan, liberal D.C. area. Mm-hmm, for sure. Which Although I like they, it. I mean, the old saying is that if if you go to D.C., like almost nobody actually lives in D.C., but the old saying is that if you're a Republican, you live on the Virginia side, and if you're a Democrat, you live on the Maryland side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, um, yeah, like my neighborhood specifically is is pretty like, you know, just judging by like yard signs and stuff, like pretty Republican. But um, but I like, the, I like the diversity in the area, and, you know, I'm kind of a little bit of a foodie myself, so I love mm. having like you know, just delicious, authentic cultural foods, you know, like where I lived in Chesapeake, it was just, um, basically like 90% like middle-class white people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Chesapeake is like that. Chesapeake actually is different from Bob Beach, which is different from Norfolk. Yeah, they are different. Um, <laughs> for sure. We live in the country, um, out there, but, but anyway, yeah, I like being up here and, um, so but I'm interested because, um, okay, so you're coming for my audience. I've listened to a little bit of stuff about you and stuff like that to kind of do my research and know some stuff about you. But I don't know, like a lot of my audience may not know much about you. Um, and I think this is a really interesting conversation because um, most of my guests, and myself included, love the meat that we get. And that's a big part of why we hunt. It's a huge part of why I hunt. Um, it's one reason why I'm not as attracted to hunting in places overseas where I can't bring the meat home back with me. Um, it's just, I was just talking to somebody cause I just got back from Amarillo, Sonora just yesterday. And on the plane next to me was a guy who shot the biggest mule deer I've ever seen. It was, oh, it was yeah? 30, 34 and a half inches wide. And Woo! The beams were like, you needed two hands to get around them. And it's like, yeah, they ate the backstraps in camp, but he's just coming home with a head and horns. And it's like, eh. that was in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can bring meat back from Mexico. It's extra hoops to jump through. But oh, um, okay. I'm actually about to go down there in a couple of weeks. To Sonora or? Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're doing coos deer, but um, I was just looking through. So, yeah, there is like paperwork and stuff you have to do, and it is extra hoops to jump through. But you can bring meat back from Mexico. It's just a lot of people don't. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what, what I was getting at was, um, and yeah, like when I travel, since I'm in Virginia, you know, obviously I travel a lot, but like, I basically have one of my suitcases as a cooler. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, 
that's just the way it is. And sometimes you got to pay a little extra to like have stuff shipped back, but to me it's worth it. Um, but anyway, I think it's kind of interesting because you like for me, obviously meat is a huge part. Okay. But I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't hunt just for meat. Like I didn't get my love of hunting because of the meat. I kind of really started to appreciate the meat more as I got older and had a family and was feeding my family with it and like enjoying cooking it and stuff. Like when I first started hunting deer, like we didn't really eat the meat very much. I donated most of my meat. Mm. Um, but you're coming at it from a different perspective of like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started hunting as an older, you know, an adult and a big part of that, if not the main part was securing proteins you couldn't buy. Correct. That is correct. Yeah. Like, um, I get, I get thrown in the same bucket with Steve Ranella quite a bit. Um, and the way I <laughs> describe the differences between, no, it's not at all. Uh, the way I describe the difference between it is, is Steve is a hunter who cooks and I'm a chef who hunts. Yeah. So there's like, we come at it from like the opposite ends of the spectrum and we meet each other in the middle. Yeah, for sure. I think that's super interesting because most of my guests like, um, you know, have been hunting their whole lives and, um, kind of like me, but it's, I like having a different perspective. So why don't you, I'm, I'm also just really interested like in your career path and stuff like that. Um, just cause it's so different from my own, but at the same time, it's kind of a creative, uh, you know, culinary arts is a creative, uh, endeavor. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about your personal background, like your career, um, and how you got to this point. Sure. Uh, it's been kind of an interesting wild ride. Um, I started, uh, I mean, I grew up in New Jersey and I grew up, okay. uh, as the last of uh, four kids and there was a gap between me and my next sister. So at one point it was just me and my mom and my stepdad and they both really like to eat good food. So with the one kid, you can actually take one kid to a nice restaurant, especially yeah. if the kids, you know, not rambunctious. And so I got to appreciate really good food at a young age. And because at one point it was just me and my mom, um, I ended up taking over some of the cooking duties in high school. So I started with her recipes and kind of went from there. And then in college, I continued to do that. And then I started working in kitchens. So I have professional experiences, both as everything from dishwasher up to sous chef. So what Uh, what was it that drew you? Was it just, um, was it really just a love for food and good food and and I guess a love for cooking that you decided you want to do it as a career or how did that kind of? So that's how it kind of started. I mean, I was studying to be a, uh, I had a, I have a history and political science major um, that I was getting at the time. And, but I really did love the kitchens. And I love the fact that the, I was kind of a, a a punk alternative kid in high school. And, (laughs) and so, you know, like listening to like, you know, black flag and dead Kennedys and the misfits and that sort of thing. And effects that just no effects ever. Uh, they're a little after me, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that and, I was super into them. And so, you know, I was re- very attracted to the kind of the, the pirate lifestyle of a restaurant cook. And yeah. so I did that for a while. And then at some point in graduate school, I went to graduate school at university of Wisconsin, go Badgers. Um, <laughs> and, and at that point I started, I started my newspaper career. So I was doing both at the same time at one point. I was line cooking and then I was stringing, which is to say you you do like a couple stories a week yeah. um, for the local newspaper. And then eventually that flipped and I ended up leaving the kitchen to become a full-time newspaper reporter. And I did that for 18 years. Okay. And I covered politics almost exclusively. 
everything from like municipal races to the presidency. Yeah. And, um, but during that entire period, I continued to cook as an amateur, but I had a good grounding in, in professional kitchens. Right. Wait, let me, let me stop you there. Cause this is kind of interesting to me. Like you said you're attracted to the pirate lifestyle of a restaurant cook. And have you, have you seen the show on Hulu by chance called the bear? I have not. I've heard okay. of it. Anyway, it's cool. It's like a, it's about a chef, but, um, it, people that aren't, have never worked in the restaurant industry, may not know it um and i was kind of like you too like my parents were like really into like good food so i was also exposed to like amazing food like early on and different cultural stuff and foods um but there's this like whole like culture this kind of it's really i like i just barely like have seen the touch of it like but like you're saying that pirate lifestyle like this kind of crazy subculture in restaurants like what is that what is that where does that come from like what's what's going on there well i'll answer that by way of the fact that why did i spend 18 years in the in newspapers when i started as a kitchen and loving that lifestyle because they're the exact same lifestyle um both journalists and professional cooks we do this because we want to do it we don't do this for the money because we both fully are are fully aware that we can make a lot more money doing other things right it's it's a calling more than a um more than a, a job and it's weird hours. It's, you know, it attracts misfits. Like we're like, if you ever seen the movie Ratatouille, that kitchen, yeah. that kitchen's the most accurate kitchen I've ever seen on film. Right. Where like the guy, one guy is like, you know, they, the fought, the, they, fought, they fought in the resistance and like, yeah. well, what war was it? I do not know. They did not win. And, <laughs> yeah. and like, it's just people from all over and from, and everybody's accepted if you work hard. And that's the okay. other piece of, of that is that, it is or should be and it almost always is a meritocracy like if you if the person cooking next to you is better at the the saute station well they're they're going to get promoted if you show up to work on time you're going to get promoted if you you know <laughs> keep a lid on your substance abuse problems which you know <laughs> i mean there that's an issue with like both cooks and journalists i mean yeah. it could be different now but in my era yeah i mean it's there were extracurricular activities quite a bit um oh, yeah. So we it's, tend it's, to all date each other. And it's like, like I, you know, you know, girlfriend that smells like fryer grease is attractive only to another cook. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, it's just kind of that kind of artist thing where it's a little like, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Hold on, buddy. I'm in a meeting. Can you please go? Thank you. Sorry. Um, so yeah, that's interesting, man. Like I always think that's, that's very, uh, I don't know. There's something interesting about it. It's kind of a, like I said, it's a subculture. It's kind of its own world, kind of behind closed doors that not many people know about. You know, it is, and and that plus the fact that I, you know, I come from a an, an fairly urban background, um, so it's me a little bit different from most people in the outdoor industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, sometimes they don't get my jokes, and vice versa. <laughs> well, I think it's very interesting, man. So, all right, so then tell me your exposure to hunting. What? Well, I guess. Yeah, so you're let's go back a little bit. So your career, you said you you went more to the journalism stuff and then it flipped. Mm-hmm. So then you you went back into working in kitchens? Yes. Um so to 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 go back even further, I grew up fishing and I grew up um gathering wild plants and mushrooms. So okay. I consider wild food to be a three-legged stool and one piece is wild plants and mushrooms. One piece is fishing and, and seaside gathering, and the other is hunting. And so I grew up with two of those as part of our family's DNA. 
Like we just did that. That was just cool. one of the things that you just do. And, um, were your parents? And so, no, oh God, no, <laughs> no. My parents were born in the depression. Okay. Um, and yeah, they're not even boomers. They're, they're the silent generation. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm older than I look maybe, or maybe I'm not older than I look, but, uh, so the, they were, they were, they grew up in the depression and it was just a thing, especially my mom's family. Cause her uncle was a fairly well-known naturalist in new England in the twenties mm. and thirties. And so her uncle taught her about that's that aspect of wild food. And then she in turn taught us. And that became an important part of just how we lived. And I didn't meet another hunter until I was 19 years old in college. Mm-hmm. It is just, a, I grew up in an environment where lots of people fished. Almost everybody I knew fished, but almost nobody. I didn't, I'd even heard, I heard of somebody like two blocks away who might've hunted deer once, but not until, uh, I had a, a guy who was a Mohawk or he, he still is a Mohawk, uh, who was on a cross country team in college and, mm-hmm. and he hunted. And that was the first time I'd actually met someone who hunted. So I had no opinions on hunting all the way up until, you know, I'm in late twenties or so when I moved to Virginia Okay. and hunting became much more of a thing. And then I was like, Oh, okay. And then, you know, and then I, what I started hunting uh, 20 years ago when, um, I was working in Minnesota and my best friend at the time was a guy named Chris Niskanen and he was the outdoor writer. And so I was an investigative reporter covering politics and he was the outdoor writer. So we had fished together a lot and then hunting season rolled along and he's like, well, you should come. And I kind of felt I was ready, you know, and, uh, there's was a it lot deer of hunting or were you guys, no, bird it, hunting? Was, it was pheasants, pheasants in okay. South Dakota. Uh, I did deer hunt very soon after that. Um, which is a funny story because it's a deer hunt you can tell in real time. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, and I, I, what I really, really liked about it was, well, first of all, I mean, Niski was kind of like a crack dealer in a sense of like the first hit's free and then you got to buy it. So, <laughs> so he had given me a bunch of pheasants and ducks and some venison. And since I knew how to cook it, I was excited because from a cook's perspective, you know, from a childhood's perspective, I grew up where the only time I would ever see game was at a fancy restaurant, mm-hmm. like at a French place in New York City or, or mm-hmm. Italian place in New York City. So I associate those meats with a special occasion. So, and I learned how to cook them. And so when I finally got my hands on them, you know, I'm like 30 years old at this point. Right. Uh, I, I went immediately to classical French recipes and and I was not disappointed. So, and then he's like, well, you got to hunt if you want more of it. So I'm like, okay, let's do this. And so that it got me in. But what kept me in was, so, you know, I... Um, so it was, it really was your desire to get your hands on more pheasant and, and wild game meat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if these are, these are flavors that you cannot, some fun flavors are unreplicable. You can't replicate it in the, in yeah. the, in the, like a, a woodcock. What tastes like a woodcock? Uh, I don't know, maybe a snipe. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, talk to me a little bit about that. Like what, what is it that's exciting to you about wild game meat? Because I guess to be honest, I've, maybe I've just been eating it for so long um, I don't know. Maybe I'm not doing it right. I don't know. But um, I guess what's, I mean, I kind of have my own answer for this question. But I'm interested to hear what you know. What excites you about about wild game meat? Chaos, <laughs> chaos is is you know because chaos. If you can embrace it, um, and enjoy it, 
you will never be bored um, cooking things. And what I mean by that is you have so many different species. You have so many different age levels. You have so many different diets. You have so many different environments. Yeah. You have so many different periods of time. So so there there fat levels. I mean, the, the, the endless variability of cooking wild game, it confounds many people. But as a cook who, I mean, if you know how to uh, work your way around it and navigate it and embrace it and really know what it, what to look for, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, you, you'll see, right. You'll see recipes from the 1800s and early 1900s that are very specific. They're like, you only do this with a young hare or mm. only do this with an old goose. And, and the fact that they knew to make those distinctions, right. you know, there's others like only do this with, you know, deer from here. And interesting. And so, they so knew age instantly. and like diet really do play a big oh, role 100%. in like the flavor. Cause oh, I, yeah. I, I gotta, I think it's just, maybe I'm just ignorant about it, you know, but like I kind of had gotten to the point where I was like, ah, you know, these people talk about, Oh, this bear ate this. And it, I'm just kind of like eh, meat's meat, you know, but I'm wrong, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell <laughs> me about that. That's super interesting to me. So let's, let's take bears. A great example. So, so that you're, you're, there's a grain of truth in what you say with cervids. So deer, all the deer. Um, okay. what about like a young ears? deer versus old deer? We, we can talk about that in a second, but let's, let's stick okay. with the, the, so sure. the cervids are going to be more, the range is more limited where the range is gigantic are all the omnivores and the omnivores we hunt are bears raccoons ducks and pigs and and so pretty much every one of those mm. can be wildly variable like i've seen i've seen mallards eating dead salmon and i've seen mallards eating peanuts and grain and rice which do you think is going to be better you know I mean, it's, the, yeah the grain probably <laughs> yeah of course uh and so the bears are are probably the most notorious for this so there's a bear eating jelly donuts is gonna, not going to be as good as a bear eating acorns or or berries, right. or like dead eating... fish on. The... Yes, yes, yeah. dead exactly. fish on the side of the river versus like blueberries. I refuse to hunt coastal bears. Yeah, because the I've fat smells like low tide. Mm. It stinks. It stinks, and it's just disgusting. Um, and so I just won't go there. Like I'm not going to kill the damn thing if I have to cut all the fat off because right. it's a shame. Yeah, because that's a, um, I mean that's bear fats like. It's a big part of why you would hunt bears is right. to get all that bear fat, you know. Yeah. And I feel so the same way pig- about duck fat too. Like yes, I see people yes. like breasting ducks and like throwing away the fat and skin. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, it depends on the duck. Like True. Like I've had enormously morbidly obese sea ducks and I'm like, hmm, I'm not from Newfoundland, oh, yeah. so I think I'm going to pass on the on the fat on that one. Because you kind of have. To <laughs> I heard that episode you did with that lady from Newfoundland. Yeah, um, Lori. Yeah. Yeah, and how like. <laughs> How their uh, the fat smells like, like I said, like low tide. Low tide and a hot day. By the and way, it's super f- interesting. Her accent sounded like she was Irish or something. Newfies are like that. It's a very specific Newfoundland accent. That's very uh, interesting. Accent. Yeah, you can always, like, if you're in Canada and you hear that, you're like, oh, Newfie. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, uh, so anyway, we're going all kinds so yeah, of rabbit ducks trails. Are, ducks but are huge. It. Like, a really great example. Like, mallards are great because they're everywhere and they have yeah. different diets everywhere. So they're they're incredibly variable. Yeah. On the other hand. Yeah, you'll open one up and it'll be like a nice, really, like, white, you know, thick layer. And then another one will be, like, translucent. You can see the meat through the skin. Or, God forbid, bright yellow or bright orange. Oh, bright yellow really is bright, bad? Bright, or- bright orange is the one you got to worry about. Why? What's there, going on there? 
So the only reason fat is orange on waterfowl is the same reason salmon and trout are, are orange. Um, they're picking up carotenoids from uh, crustaceans. So mm. the, the, you know, like when you boil crabs and lobsters and they turn bright red, yeah, it's the same thing that is turning the fat red on oh, salmon wow. and trout and waterfowl. So, so you'll see a lot of like sea flamingos ducks. maybe. Same yes, kind of I mean to, yeah, there, there's a, it's that they, for whatever reason, turn pink and not orange, but, uh, but yeah. yes, cause they're eating brine shrimp. Yeah. Interesting. It's, it's, it's exactly that. And, you know, so diet is, is profound. You, you know, there are certain birds, waterfowl to be, to be specific that will never fail you. I've never even heard of a bad wood duck and Lord knows I've never eaten a bad wood duck. Interesting. I've never heard of a bad pintail. Um, what I've never heard teal? of teal. I've always enjoyed teal. Blue and green, yes. Cinnamon, not so much. Okay, yeah. So a cinnamon teal is like a, a love child between a green wing teal and a spoonie. And okay. they kind of eat they kind of eat the same. Okay. So they're not terrible, but yeah. they're not fantastic. You know, uh, a great, great duck example with two ducks that everyone throws in the same bucket are ready ducks and buffleheads. Mm. So they're both little ducks, they're both little divers, mm-hmm. but ready ducks. 80% of their diet is plant material, sometimes more than that. But buffleheads, 80% of their diet are invertebrates. Okay. So I would never pluck a buffle. I don't even shoot bufflehead because they're so right. small and you got to skin them. Like, what's the point? So uh, not all one. divers are created the same because a lot oh, of people God, would be like, no. oh, I don't eat divers. But well, then, some divers are good. A lots of divers. I mean, canvasbacks is the king of all ducks. Yeah, true. Um, and then canvasbacks. Like blackheads. Are, huh? Blackheads, or uh, some people call them scop or golden eye. So, well, they're all different birds. So, okay. um, so canvasbacks are almost never bad. I say that almost because there's one spot here in California where they eat Baltic clams, and they're like meh. Um, <laughs> redheads, almost never bad. So those two are are you can I would your default is to pluck them. Gadwall. The other def- huh? Gadwall. They're they're a puddler. Um, and there are different, there are different. Well, I know they're not divers, but they're good, right? I've always liked, I've always liked Gadwall pretty good. So where I live in California, if they, if you, if you hunt them North of Sacramento, where I live, they eat rice and they're fantastic. If you hunt them South of Sacramento, they eat natural forage. They're, they're basically built to eat and ferment green things in their guts. So when they do. So interesting, man. Like you're like, like learning about this is like, you're like a, it's like you're a biologist. Like, I, I, I read I think, a lot of biology. I think so it, many people are just like, oh, duck, myself included. Just like, oh, duck's a duck or whatever. No, but God yeah, no. there's so much stuff going on. So yeah, south of the city, they eat green things and they ferment it in their guts, which is why we call them gag walls because it <laughs> absolutely stinks and they don't put on any fat down there. So, I mean, I'll shoot them down there, but I don't like it. I'd prefer to shoot green wing teal because they have a better diet down down south of the city. And and mm. so I bring that up just as an example because your your results will be the same in the sense that if you shoot ducks on a farm in inland, say like Culpeper, um, they're going to be way different from the ducks that you shoot in the Chesapeake. Right. For sure. Um, are you still there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You just cut off abruptly. I didn't know. Um, okay, so what about Canada geese? Because I've never had much luck. When I say luck, I mean like I've never really enjoyed eating Canada goose that much, except for a couple very specific preparations. Um, is that a 
age thing? Yes. Is that diet? You are correct. It's almost always an age thing. So Canada geese do have a pretty variable diet, but in general, they are flying grass-fed beef. Yeah. So they're primarily grass eaters, and they so their fat is going to have uh, actually a very high omega-3 content to it. It also goes rancid quickly. So, mm. so like a, a year old Canada goose breast with the skin and fat on it may not be so great um, because it, it will it will slow it will deteriorate even in a freezer. Interesting. But really, the problem is the age. So, the oldest Canada goose ever recovered was thirty one years old. Oh my you know, gosh! That's according crazy. to the band on its leg. Um, wow. It was it was shot by a teenager, which is really funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, the average age, especially of the of the residents, is going to be you know six, seven, eight, ten years old. So you're mm-hmm. you're shooting a bird that is exponentially older than even even really fine beef. You know True. everything that we buy in the supermarket, with the exception of a stewing hen, which and those are hard to find now, is going to be no more than about two years old. Right. And you know a chicken you buy in the supermarket is six to eight weeks. Wow. So the, 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 the facts, the factors that go into flavor and texture and toughness are, are really, really come to the fore with Canada geese because they're big, they're old. Um, they live a long time. They, they, you know, the migrators especially go great distances. So you're dealing with toughness um, mm-hmm. and they're hard to pluck. So yeah, typically, I mean, our, our limit is 10 in, uh, in California, so if I shoot a bunch of them, I'll I'll feel around for the ones that are the are shot the cleanest, like just a wing shot or a head shot. I'll yeah. plug them. Um, but mostly I'm going to skin them because it's just a huge pain in the ass. The skin yes. is absolutely worth it, but it's it's you know it's a tough nut to crack sometimes. Yeah, I will say my um, love for eating ducks really like exploded when. I had a friend of mine who, you know, I kind of fell into that lazy trap of like, oh, I'll just breast it out, and blah, blah, blah. Um, which is nothing wrong with that necessarily. But a friend of mine like turned me on to plucking and cooking the whole bird, and I really Hashtag give a pluck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that was like a game changer. I was like, wow, these birds are delicious. If it really is. It, right. it really yeah. is, and it, you know, so I started plucking, and um, and so my default has always been to pluck and sometimes it's bit me in the ass because when I, I, I taught myself how to duck hunt, which okay. um, anybody out there who's a duck hunter knows that, um, you know, there's a lot of mistakes you can make, <laughs> 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 including um, because I, I also taught myself how to shoot a shotgun. So in the beginning I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn and I kind of practice on coots. Mm-hmm. And so I would bring these coots home and I would pluck them because, duh, right? Right. And they look beautiful, by the way. If you've never seen a plucked coot, it looks amazing because they have bright white fat and they're usually quite fat and they look delicious. Alas. <laughs> Not any good? No, the, the fat um, is pondy. So I don't know if you've ever eaten a muskrat, but it's very similar in that there's this kind of Actually, algae. I have ate a muskrat and it was good. It was I thought like, it was good. It was like there's pork. There's kind of an algae smell to the fat. Yeah, we um, brined that thing for a long yes. time. Yes, you see, I didn't know about that. Um, so, I mean, I'll eat coots. I'll eat coots. The cows come home if you skin them, 
but mm-hmm. that fat is pretty rough. Gotcha. Um, and I stunk up the whole house roasting one because I'm like, oh, this is gonna be amazing. <laughs> I mean, shit, the, the the Louisianans call them water chickens. So how bad could they be? And apparently, they skin them too and they put them in gumbo. So less. Got gotcha. you, man. Um, that's interesting, dude. Because I, you know, I I started off my career. Uh, oh, not my career, but you know, what I mean, like my hunting. Um, ducks and dove were you know where I started. So I've you know. We've had swan. Um, we've had pretty much anything. Dove is probably one of my favorite game meats, like of any bird or of I anything. I like doves a lot. I like doves yeah. a lot. And in fact, uh, our bantail pigeon season is about to open up. Okay. And uh, so it's a it's a native wild pigeon that lives only in the West. Okay. And yeah, the season's very short, and the limits are very small, but it's worth it. Yeah. Because uh, so you know how like wood ducks often eat acorns, and and they're mm-hmm. pretty amazing flavored. Bantails yeah. are the same way. Okay. That's cool. So, um, I'd like, I would like to turn it a little bit to like, we kind of, uh, said we're going to come back to the cervids. Um, you know, you said there's not as much variability as far as diet. Um, is there very, variability in terms of age, age and then hormones. So, hmm. so there's all I, kinds of, just let me preface this real mm-hmm. quick with something else. Cause like I've heard, certain people say of certain species like oh they're not good or somebody like oh you can't eat a rutting caribou they taste like piss or a uh, mule deer or you know whatever whatever like i just i feel like most of that stuff if not all of it i want to hear your take on it obviously but like just comes down to how people take care of the meat in the field and how they prepare it because I've I don't think I've ever had the only two pieces of meat I've had that I thought were disgusting were crow and chipmunk and those are different stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different um, story. but uh, uh, but yeah, I just I, I I feel like a lot of it is hype or maybe a person had one bad experience because you know it was a deer that somebody didn't clean it properly and cooked it terribly and they're like oh deer tastes bad or you know I just feel like it's it's. Um, I don't know. I, I've never really got a bad experience with a with an animal like that. I have. Okay. Um, so you are correct, however, in that the majority of the problems with with red meat animals, because uh, you know pronghorns aren't cervids, and neither are sheep and goats. True. I guess I meant like um, big game. I guess. Yeah, be. yeah, yeah. So the the biggest problem with red meat animals is is field care and how and how they're prepped. Mm-hmm. So we can get into that, but I will tell you the one that isn't. You know, sometimes diet does play an effect, you know. So you, you, if you, some pronghorn and some mule deer, uh, they're they eat so much sagebrush, yeah, that they are quite sagey. And I've heard that. That is, that's not a stopper. It's just you can't not taste the sage. So you have to kind of go with what God gave you and and play to it because it's not necessarily unpleasant. It's just. It, it, it would be weird if you put a sagey piece of meat in a dish where sage didn't have any place in it. Right. You got to work so with it. No, yes, it. exactly. The other, and this is the big one, are uh, rutting hormones. Right. So there's been a lot of meat science that's been written about this because there are farm deer um, all over the world. And so they do things like shear force testing, which is how tough the meat is. And they do things about acidity and pH and all of these things affect meat flavor. And I will not shoot uh, a deer. I won't even hunt for deer in the high rut because I'm 
both the, the boys and the girls are just juiced. And, <laughs> and so the guys, the guys are fighting all the time. I mean, I mean, if you've ever been to a nightclub at like one thirty in the morning, it's exactly the same. <laughs> um, and so they're all juiced up. They're all fighting. They're all, you know, chasing the girls around. And so their condition just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So they lose all their fat. Their, their, their meat changes its pH, its acidity levels. They're, they're full of hormones. And it's just, there's an enormous change in the body condition of a, of a full of a, it, cause it takes a couple of weeks. So if a deer in full rut, and then it's even worse is a deer right after the rut. So a deer mm -hmm. right after the rut, he's all worn out. And so you, you see a lot of like these big deer, they don't make it through the winter because they did everything they could to, to breed all their females as best right. they could. And then they're like, they're spent. And so like, if you come around and you, and you whack that guy in like three weeks after the rut's over, he is just, he's dead on his feet. And so that meat quality is going to be terrible. Hmm. So that, that's real. That's not, that's not made up. And, um, in terms of taste, it's yes. taste bad. Yeah. So it's tougher. It's, there's a kind of a sourness to it. Okay. Um, and have and you ever had in, that like doggy flavor? Yeah. Yes. What is I mean, that? Not that, eaten, not that I've eaten dogs, but it's, yeah, uh, that's it's the smell. only way I can think of to like describe it. it like it's a wet like, dog yeah, like wet dog. So that's tarsal gland. Um, yeah. so like the big ruddy deer there, I mean, think about it. I mean, did you ever play sports? Yeah. It's like a locker room at halftime. Right. And, <laughs> and so like testosterone stinky and mm -hmm. they've got it all over their fur and, and it's running through their bodies. And, and so, you know, cleaning a ruddy deer, I treat it the same way as cleaning a javelina, which is to say, I wear a couple of pairs of gloves. Mm -hmm. So that it don't, I don't get it on my hands. I don't get it on my knife. And then to clean the knife in between and it's, it can be mitigated, but it can't be completely eliminated. Gotcha. Yeah. I've been eating, um, just like this last week or so I've been eating a mule deer that I just shot. Um, he was, he had a group of like seven does with them. I don't know if it would say it was like peak rut, but it was, I mean, it was rut. It was November 15th. I shot him. Um, I do feel like the meat's been pretty good. Although I got to say, I've been, um, I've been making like bulgogi out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so it's know, heavily it's marinated. marinated. Yeah. Right. So, so I, I shot a nice big, uh, whitetail in Oklahoma this year and it was like the first week of the rut. So his, his neck was all big. Uh, already. Yeah. This guy's neck was just like almost as wide as his body. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. It was crazy, it's, dude. They get that way because they're, they're about to fight and they get nicked in the neck quite a bit. Okay, um, yeah. I actually butchered, we do a deer camp. I do a cooking school uh, and deer hunt in Oklahoma almost every year. And so people fly out and they hunt and I cook for them and we do like butchery classes and such like that. And so I end up butchering like you know, several dozen deer and, and we get a chance to see um, the wounds that the bucks give each other. Oh yeah. I've seen some nasty ones like on social media and stuff where it's like full of pus and stuff. Oh, it's so gross, dude. Oh, yeah. oh. I like didn't see one because it had healed over, and I'm and I'm and I'm cleaning this deer, and it's like I just missed my cheek by like inches. It was so nasty. <laughs> oh, na oh, it squirted. Yeah. Oh, dude. Blah. Um, I feel like this mule deer though. Like I feel like I've been, I can't. I feel like based on that versus what I'm used to seeing, which is like a Chesapeake Virginia whitetail. I feel like there's more intramuscular fat in this. Would that make sense to you? Um, 
Or is it Not just maybe really. the, the way it's frozen, it just looks it's, like it or something? It could be that because... Because I've been shaving it while frozen, you know, to get those thin slices. Yeah. Marbling doesn't really exist in wild game. Um, yeah. And I, there's an asterisk to that. Like, it's not impossible, but even sedentary farm-raised deer have such little internal marbling that it's barely ne- measurable. Okay. So it's just the way they're built. They don't do it like cows do. Like, bovids yeah. can. Like, So, I mean, there's a bunch of bovids you can hunt, too. I mean, you know, all cows are, of course, the most famous bovid. But, um, but Nilgai in Texas, Oryx in New Mexico, um, muskox and bison. Uh, would be your probably your most famous bovids that you can hunt. Yeah. And if they're in a if they're in a situation where they can put on fat, they will put on marbling. Right. So okay, aside from you know hormones and peak rut degrading um, flavor and stuff like that, which like you said, it can be mitigated. And I've eaten deer peak rut that you know it might not be as good, but you can still mm-hmm. it's still they're fine. It's, yeah, you can still eat it. I mean, it's probably yeah. not like the best but um i don't know have have you come across any like meat or animals that like are just not good and i mean like more like big game type animals um and not not because of hormones or anything just like they're just not good mountain goats really mountain goats are challenging um i mean i can cook them and i'll you know if you give me a mountain goat i'll make it taste good but yeah i have to use like my chef powers because <laughs> Because they're they're goaty, man. I don't know if you've eaten a lot of goat in the Caribbean or in Mexico. Like, I haven't eaten a ton of goat. Like the whole reason that birria exists is is to is to make a stinky old billy goat taste good. And okay. you know, so yes, you can get birria made with beef, but birria. I mentioned that because it's oh, a, like biryani. No, no, birria. It's a Mexican okay. dish. It's very oh, trendy okay. right now, which is why I mention it. Gotcha. Um, and yes, biryani has goat too quite often. Um, like curry in India will right. often be done with goats and like there's a famous Jamaican curry goat uh, and they're all meant to strong, use strong flavors to offset the old stinky goatiness of like, <laughs> like the goatiness is like, it's again, it's testosterone. It's like, it's like what you smell like at halftime in a game. But even a nanny will taste this bad as well. No, nanny's going to be better. Uh, but she, she'll be still, you know, you'll know. Oh, yeah, that's a that's that's an mature goat, <laughs> uh, and sheep are the same way. So, but although wild sheep are interesting because I only have limited experience with wild sheep, but I've talked to lots of people, and I've only of all the people I've talked to about wild sheep, I've only heard one person say that it wasn't very good, and I don't trust that person's palate. Yeah. Um, unlike domestic sheep, mutton is extremely strong compared to lamb. And lamb, you know, lamb is actually stronger in flavor than kid goat. Like, mm. like baby goats have have no off flavors at all. Uh, and really, baby lambs don't either. But we don't. This is a side note. But we don't actually eat lamb in the United States. We each we eat something called a hogget, which is so to be a lamb. A lamb is a lamb like under six months, but okay. not in the United States. Legally, a lamb is everything up to like eleven months, and you know, and and three quarters. You know, hmm. so. They're big enough where they get a smell on them, which is why if you know somebody who doesn't like lamb, they probably would like actual lamb, but they don't like this bigger animal that the American right. palate is, the American market has decided that they want. Yeah. That's um, kind of an interesting segue. Like, good segue when you talk about like the American palate and the American market, because um, so my wife is Iranian. And um, I mean, she grew up in Iran until she was like 14 and they lived in Turkey. And so my mother in law, obviously, except for the last like 10 years lived her entire life in the middle east in iran 
And um, I started, you know, I started getting into when I started to get more appreciation of wild game and stuff. I started wanting to process my own meat and um, and to save money and just everything else and just whatever. So I started I started bringing home deer and you know in Chesapeake, you know, I'm talking four, five, six deer a year. Um, so we eat almost exclusively um, wild game. Um, and my my daughter just walked in. Hey, buddy, can you go? Daddy's in a meeting. Okay. Okay. I'll see you later. Sorry. So where's my the... Christmas present? <laughs> <laughs> Forgot to lock the door one time, and they're both home <laughs> sick, so they're just like coming in. But anyway, um, so yeah, so um, I started bringing home, you know, quarters, and I was, you know, my mother-in-law lives with us, and. I don't know, maybe it's just my American, like, mother-in-law stereotypes. I kind of thought she'd be like, ew, you know, like, animal stuff. But, um, you know, over there, when they go to the the meat market, they don't come with little prepackaged cellophane, perfectly cut little cuts and bring it home. They go to the meat market and get half a goat or mm-hmm. a whole goat or a quarter or whatever. So, uh, you know, my, my mother-in-law comes out and, I, and like, I was thinking, you know, I'll have to kind of show her what to do. She was schooling me on how to butcher this stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, and, it's, uh, it, so my, so cool. my first, I learned how to butcher. I used to work at an Ethiopian restaurant. Okay. And and so we would get whole lambs, and it was my job to butcher the lamb for, for meat for the restaurant. And I received very little instruction from my boss. Yeah. <laughs> she assumed everybody knew how to do it. And, yeah. That's... And it's it's it actually is if you just kind of get away from being intimidated by it, um, because at this point, like I would say, compared to most hunters, I'm like above average at butchering and cutting up because I've just done it. But really, it's very intuitive. It's like God just did it for you. All you do is just like cut along the muscle lines. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> called seam butchery, and um, it's actually what I teach because okay. you can butcher a, a big game animal. You know, I mean, it's nice to have a, a hacksaw for like the shanks and for the ribs, right? But I can butcher. I mean, I've butchered a nil guy with a pocket knife. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I pretty much do everything with like a um, a Havilon mm-hmm. and just and uh, you can take it all the way apart. Um, it's pretty cool. I think more people should like try it. They would be surprised with how not intimidating it actually is. Everything is built the same too. So once you learn the general geography of a of an animal, yeah, um, everything from a rabbit to um, to a bison is built roughly the same. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing about like my my mother in law that I've picked up from them is like um, the 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 wonders of an instant pot and like slow cooking. And I mean they they've been able to turn me on to cuts that I never would have eaten before in fact i don't know if you've ever done this before but one of my favorite parts of a deer right now is after you clean i'm talking about after you've already removed all the back strap and everything we will actually take the spine and cut it into thirds and then they'll put the piece of the spine into instant pot and do some other magic to it and when you pull the thing out, you just like scrape all the meat off the bones. And it's like some of the best meat, like to the point where I was like at my old hunt club, like going to dudes gut piles and like pulling their spines out. And they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> that's, you a, that? I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, I've done it in terms of making soup. Um, 
but they you do have to worry about CWD. Yeah. I mean, you got to be careful about that for sure. But yeah. I mean, you're basically eating backstrap meat that you just couldn't clean it all off. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like out here in California where we have blacktail, which there's been, there's no CWD out here. Yeah. I, I use, I basically use everything like nose to nose to feet. Yeah. So what are some of the most like underrated, I guess, or underused cuts in your opinion? I think the number one underused cut that people would be shocked at how good it is is the tongue. Yeah. Um, so we eat beef know, tongue sometimes. I never tried a deer tongue. Exactly, it's the exact same thing. Apparently, okay. I, I have I've eaten the tongues off of damn near everything, and they're they pretty are small very, though. They are the but but you're in Virginia, so you can kill multiple deer. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> excuse me. So generally, uh, they're all they're all they all cook the same. Uh, unfortunately, the you're going to really see the age difference with cooking different aged tongues. So, so like a big old giant, you know, trophy buck is that tongue's going to take an hour longer than a, a little dough. Um, <laughs> but they all taste great. How you do you them prepare like them? Beef tongue. You, you basically almost always have to simmer it until it's tender, and then you peel it, and then you can do other things with it. So I've I've corned them like corned beef. Okay. I have. Um, I have, I mean, my favorite, favorite thing to do is tacos de lengua, though. Um, so the way I like to do tacos de lengua is I will simmer it until you can peel the skin off. And then I will grill the whole tongues and then chop them up into little pieces and then serve them in tacos. Because the one thing you want to avoid when you serve tongue is to give someone a whole tongue because it looks really weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, a, uh, I yeah. don't know that I want to eat this. But if it's chopped up, they're going to like, what is this meat? This is amazing. Yeah. Because that's where you have intramuscular fat. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, with beef tongue, like I said, I, I can't speak to the deer tongues. I haven't tried it yet. But with beef tongue, silky, um, very tender. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Extremely. Like, very tender. Like we'll we'll you know mash it up in rice and give it to the kids and be like yeah it's yeah, just beef exactly. and they're like yeah you know because it is it's just yeah. a muscle so that's one I mean I think heart, lots of people use hearts so yeah um I think the kidneys I got a another. mule deer heart in my freezer from this one it's like it's like mongo. this big dude it's giant I like what do you, make, how do you um, do hearts uh, I do hearts in lots of ways but the I think my favorite is a Peruvian dish called anticuchos de corazón which is essentially a heart kebab. Um, it, it, you take the heart and you trim it. So you get all the veins out and you get all the fat off. Cause that fat's really, really waxy. Um, yeah. I saw that and then you meat eater episode. Yes. And then you, you tenderize the heart chunks and then you marinate them in this very particular mix of chilies and citrus. That's very Peruvian. Uh, and then you grill them over a hot fire until they're about medium. And then you, you eat them with, you know, corn and rice and such. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, so do you think that, like, as a general rule, wild game is inherently, like, more nutrient-dense than farm meat? It may be. Um, I, I think... Or is I'm there, like, a benefit health-wise? Like, you see oh, a lot yeah. of people, like, oh, Fat I... Levels. Yeah. Is there Fat a benefit health... Okay. But, like, in terms of micronutrients or anything like that, I think there's a benefit health-wise to wild game over... Or, or, you know, on the other side of it, like, you know, just not getting whatever chemicals or vaccines or hormones or whatever they might be putting them into farm farm meat. I think there's some truth to that. I think the one thing that people get miss, however, is in, in, in many parts of the country, the deer that they are shooting are eating GMO or yeah. or whatever. Pesticides uh, that are on everything. 
So it's like that, that's not entirely different from, from the cattle. So that's a piece of it, but it's a pretty complicated subject. I mean, yes, I think that in general, game animals are more nutrient dense because of their diet and because of how long they live and because of the nature of their fat. Yeah. Um, I basically harvest fat from, uh, from ducks and geese. Uh, occasionally if I have a really good pheasant ear, you can get a little bit of fat off of them. Um, pigs, wild pigs for sure. If I happen to shoot a bovid, like a nilgai or a bison, um, I harvest that fat as well. Bear fat for sure. Okay, uh, settle this for me then. Okay. Cervid fat. Why do people not? What's the deal with cervid fat? Oh, that's easy. So cervid fat. And by the way, pronghorns are not cervid, so they're they're accepted from this. Okay. Um, but cervid fat. So elk, deer, moose, caribou. The nature of it, uh, it contains a very long chain fatty acid called stearic acid, uh, S-T-E-A-R-I-C. So stearic acid uh, is an extremely long chain fatty acid, which doesn't break down really easily. Hmm. It has a very high melt point, and it has a, and by, because of that, it it sets back up very very quickly. So, so for example, if wild duck fat in general is semi liquid to completely liquid at room temperature, uh, you need a freaking chisel to get deer rendered deer fat out of a thing at room temperature. So okay. what happens is it's not the flavor of the of the deer fat that's the problem because by and large, piping hot, super hot deer fat is delicious. Okay, because I have like a cools. huge chunk of of Sitka blacktail fat when we were in Alaska, and going back to what you said earlier, I mean, there's definitely a difference because this is not a deer in Chesapeake eating yes. pesticides on soybeans. This was like never even seen a farm, may have right. never even seen a human, and um. You have and, a better chance of that fat being delicious because uh, I had the same experience yeah. with a I just couldn't. Here. I was like, I got to bring this chunk of fat. It's got to be good for something. So I just brought it home with me. Uh, and my buddy here, was I like, I don't thing. know. So, yeah. So here's the thing. So if you were to – what would you do with that big piece of fat? Um, Could you grind think, it in with your burger if yes, you're doing that? Yeah, that's a great idea. So, so I typically, no matter where the deer is from, I will typically grind in a small percentage of deer fat into – sausage and burger okay what that does is it allows you to know that it's a deer like it, this is a deer burger because it adds a lot of flavor and as long as you add like no more than five percent by weight you're not going to get that because it, like i was about to say is that the, it's not the flavor that people get mad at it's the fact that as it cools it coats your mouth so mm. it's it, your mouth gets coated with this kind of deary waxy nom nom and like nobody <laughs> likes it and then even me, I'm like, Ugh. Um, you know, a cute few people I know is like, oh, I love it. But that's they're the exception. Most normal humans are like, yeah, I don't really like this. So it's the it's that long chain fatty acid. As, yes, it's mouthfeel as it cools that gets you. So if you look at really old English recipes for like a roast haunch of venison, they don't rest them. They're like it comes off the fire and you carve it and eat it right away. And it, it's a recognition of the fact that crispy piping hot venison fats really quite good but as 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 it cools it is no longer very good okay man like oh, so many questions man and this has just been kind of just free flow because i got so many questions this is just super <laughs> interesting but um really quick on that you mentioned resting why did people why are you supposed to rest meat i don't even know sure because um heating meat 
increases the molecular activity in meat. So um, imagine all of the atoms inside the piece of meat bouncing around at a high rate of speed mm-hmm. when it's when it's very hot. And if you were to break that barrier, so when you, if you let's see, you slice that piece of backstrap in half, right as it came off the the fire, you've essentially broken all the cells in that in that area, and it's going to gush liquid because everything inside the meat is moving, 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 moving very quickly. Okay. And so you're going to lose a lot of moisture that way. And and so by resting, the interior of the of the meat, those all those particles are moving slower. So you're going to get a significantly less moisture loss by resting meat. So there's gotcha. there, there's a couple things that that happen. This is if you cooked the meat very hot, like seared something, you're going to get a lot of carryover heat because the outside of the meat can be you know 500 degrees. It takes a little while for that to cool down. So resting allows uh, the interior of the meat's temperature to equalize better. So you don't have like black and blue. And the other piece to that is if you cook your meat dead rare, and I'm talking like 115, 120 internal, you actually don't have to rest it because hmm. the interior of the meat that is cooked that lightly hasn't the, – the, so the way to imagine it is the particles haven't sped up enough for you to lose all the moisture. Right. Interesting. Science! Um, yeah, science. <laughs> this is cool, man. Um, so – Here's another one for you. So um, we in my house eat liver like Mm -hmm. fairly regularly, um, mainly calf liver. Um, I've tried. And again, my, you know, my wife and mother-in-law, they're great at cooking wild game. They're not afraid of organ meat at all. But we cannot get a deer liver to taste good. Is there... Uh, a way to do it or I mean absolutely how how do you make deer liver taste good so I I actually don't even like calves liver all that much so I'm a I'm more of a liver hater than even most people are okay so but I've so I've needed to crack that code and let me tell you just so for context how we eat it they do it in a, a I think it's a Persian style basically dice it into small cubes and make maybe equal parts um diced uh potato um, they'll saute some onion, um, some tomato paste, and some spices, and then throw in the, the liver and the onion, or the liver and the potatoes, and and just they might pre-cook the potatoes till they're like, you know, they cook at the same time. But it's um, like a liver hash. Yeah, that's kind of how we eat it, and then eat it with bread, and it's like super good. Hmm, sounds good. Um, before I ever cook any deer liver that is older than like a fawn or a buttonbuck. So those, that's the equivalent of a calf's liver. Those, right. those livers, you know, have at it. They're, they're going to be fantastic. Um, but anything that's, you know, got a little age on it. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Cause like, of again, course when, a calf liver is going to be better than a, like it's going to have a, the corresponding, if it's a five-year-old deer, it's going to be, uh, exactly, it's not going to be exactly. like a calf liver. Think about my liver, what I've done to my liver over the decades <laughs> of my life. Yeah. Oh man. <laughs> You know, you do not yeah. want to eat my liver. And yeah, the same either. thing is like a, you know, 12 year old, you know, moose for crying out loud. Um, so the, the first thing I do <clears throat> is, is if it's a really old animal, I may not keep it. Um, like that, the buck I shot in Oklahoma this year was about, we, we aged it about eight years old and its liver was as black as midnight. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pass on that yeah. one. So, but on a regular buck or a regular doe, um, what I will do 
is I will first cut it into, you know, you know how it's like lobe. Mm -hmm. So I'll cut it into a couple, two, three big pieces. And then I will brine it overnight in very simple brine. The ratio is a quarter cup of kosher salt and a quart of water. Okay. And you don't even need to heat it up because that, that will dissolve. You can just stir it. So I will brine it overnight in that. And that will uh, take out an enormous amount of stinking blood. And then I do another brine, or it's not really a brine, but I do another soak in milk. Mm. And I do that for another day. I do the exact same thing with kidneys. So like 48 hours. Yes, before I do anything with it. I, I might freeze it after that and you know, eat it later. But to prep it, doing both of those things removes an enormous amount of you know excess blood, excess smell. Um, it makes it milder to the point where like it gets closer to calf's liver. Gotcha. Okay. I'll try that next time. Um, so I feel like I could just rapid fire ask you random questions all day. Maybe answer is B. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I could have you back sometimes. This is, this sure. is really interesting. Um, because I, I feel like, I mean, I feel like, you know, it has become a, a more addressed topic as of late with, you know, meat eater and stuff like that. And, um, but still, even then I think it is still sort of a, underrepresented topic in many ways in, in the space. So it's getting better. I mean, when I started, has, I started yeah. Hunter Angler Gardener Cook in 2007 and, and I was like a voice in the wilderness at that point. Yeah. And now there's, there's a bunch of people doing good work and some of them are mediators, some of them are not. And, and there's a bunch of people out there who are starting to do like, I don't feel alone anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that same episode I listened to earlier with um, the guy from Elevated Wild, who's a Virginia guy. Wait, yeah, he's a Fredericksburg yeah. guy. Yeah, I've seen this stuff on Instagram. I'm like, wow, it's like amazing. Some of the he's stuff a they chef. do. And yeah, yeah. Like, I'd really love to have you on, and because I, I think it'd be super cool to do like a, a you know, a cure a, a whole back quarter or something. You know, make a prosciutto or like something like that. I have a recipe for cool. that on the website. It's called Mochita. And, um, is that something that people can do, you mm -hmm. know, even if you don't have like a shed to dedicate to it or like, you it'd know, it'd be nice you... to have a basement. Um, I have a basement. So mochita is, it's uh, an Italian thing that they do with chamois, uh, like the little chamois oh, cool. goatee yeah. things. Um, and then, so I would do this with a small animal and coos deer? salt. Yeah, you can do it with a coos deer, but I mean, only if you got a forked horn, but if you got a nice coos deer, they even they're kind of, I mean, you're in Virginia. Okay. Whack right, a button yeah. buck or a fawn or a <laughs> yearling. Like that's what you want. Okay. Um, because it, the yes, reason why. A good reason to go out and whack a fawn. <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, deer veal is my favorite. Um, yeah. They are good. So anyway, the reason why you do that is because you're salting the hind leg and you're curing it with no skin. And so you, you, you have to cure it at fairly high humidity levels. And the bigger the, the ham the longer it's going to take for the salt to get to the bone and the longer it's going to take to cure and, and you're going to run out of time. Um, it's going to get a hard shell on the outside. And it's just going to be gross. And you're not going to be happy. So these littler animals, it works much, much better. And, and uh, it's a thing that the Italians do in the Alps. And I've, I've picked up that exact same method and it works very well with little deer. Okay. That sounds really cool. Like I, I think I could talk my wife into letting me hang that in the basement. <laughs> Yeah, you like um, bury it in salt for a few days first, okay. and then and then you Is take it, smell? it out. Uh, uh. Okay. It might get a little bit of white mold on it, and that's fine. But okay. Um, in general, and this is a whole another conversation. But in general speaking, if you're curing something, black mold's your enemy. Okay. Um, 
and what's approximately how long does that whole thing take before you can eat the thing? A couple months. Okay. So it's not like a year process. No, no, no. This is not prosciutto. Prosciutto. The reason why those hams take so long is because they have the skin and fat on and skin and fat insulates everything. Gotcha. Okay. And well, big. that's super interesting. I really want to try that out. Um, but, uh, I don't want to, I usually go about an hour. Like I said, I could probably talk to you forever. So I'd love to have you back sometime. <laughs> yeah. If but... you want to come back, let's pick a, like a very specific topic and yeah, drill down on it. I agree. I agree. Um, but last question, cause it's sort of kind of one of the themes of the podcast is I'd like to hear your take on, um, spiritual connection to food. If you think there is one, like something that comes to my mind is, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but after Jesus resurrects, his uh, disciples go out fishing and they're all depressed and he has them come in and he doesn't do anything like super spiritual or like, you know, basically what he does is he has breakfast with them and he has charcoal fish, presumably that he caught um, and, and has breakfast. With them. There's other instances like um, I think Isaiah in the old Testament, um, he's about to basically kill himself and an angel comes. And the first thing angel does is like cook him some bread and give him bread and water. Do you think there's a, a spiritual connection or like, what's your take on that with, with food and, and why, especially like in this context of wild food and, and gathering our own food and that kind of stuff. I think the biggest connection is it, it's, it's hardwired. So we are hardwired to, develop more satisfaction on all levels, you know, intellectual, spiritual, no matter, it doesn't matter the emotional from food that we have worked to get. And it doesn't necessarily mean hunting. Um, your tomato tastes better than a store-bought tomato. The trout you caught in the mountains tastes better than a a trout you eat in the restaurant. The, the deer you, you shot is much more fulfilling. And the word fulfilling is a good one in this case, because that can fulfill any number of buckets that need filling. And, and yes, I think it is entirely, entirely, uh, you know, a filling experience, you know, spiritually and emotionally and even mentally, because there's a lot of sort of mechanical things you have to think about too, which we've Mm -hmm. been talking about in terms of, Acquiring your food, whether it's plants, whether it's game, whether it's fish. Yeah. Um, Even finding that morale and like yes, you get excited exactly. almost like you just exactly. saw a huge buck. And like so then the, the rich guy who shops at Whole Foods and buys morels at $55 a pound, they don't get that. And yeah. and it's this is this is not just humans either. I mean, there are lots of studies that that for zoo animals, because zoo animals, I mean, think about it, they're in prison. Yeah. Um you know, they've shown this with big cats and the big cats are like super depressed and they die early and all that kind of stuff. Cause there's, there's nothing to do. Right. Sure. So what they've done not is fulfilling their God given like, de- yes. like destiny of their life. They have created like games for them to get their food. Like they've got to solve problems to get their right. food. And, and when you have to solve problems to get your food, no matter what it is, that releases endorphins or whatever, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Um, and we enjoy it more. Yeah. And it's like this, um, I, I think I was I heard Rogan mention it on a podcast or something too. It's like um, when you when you do something that scares you, like um, something risky, and you complete a task that's a challenge, there's a actual like chemical reward in your brain. Um, and it's similar with, um, like you're saying, with acquiring your own food, like um, a big part of the reason why like we as men and as people 
get so much satisfaction out of like someone's like how could you like enjoy like killing something like part of the reason we get satisfaction out of like killing a deer is because you get a literal like physiological like reward in your brain which you know is connected to your spirit and your body and everything um because that's how like you know back in the olden days it'd be like a reward of okay you secured meat like your family will eat for the next month like you're Mm -hmm. surviving and it's like a reward system yeah i mean and and for the most part like it's not easy you know, I mean, I, people yeah. are like, oh, you're just sitting in a deer stand, blah, blah, blah. Well, <laughs> I know guys who have sat in a deer stand for two freaking weeks before they see, get a deer in range. Like, yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't like standing in a tree stand when it's zero out waiting no. for a deer to come by. Like, no. That's not very fun. Most people can't get past waking up at four in the morning and walking into the woods at dark, in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, it's funny because this is an entirely different conversation, but the in the in, in the hunting world you see people with the hero shot or where on tv they're like yay shot the deer and you know it, out taken out of context it looks like they're celebrating the actual death of the animal right what they're really celebrating is is all of the work that they put together yeah to succeed at that which they have been doing and then they're th- they're starting to think about what comes after which is on the table yeah yeah and i love it man like i said just again like as um having kids and being able to basically replace i would say probably 90 to 95 percent of the red meat we consume maybe as high as like 97 percent of the red meat we consume um you know replacing that from store-bought stuff to like literally my children eat almost exclusively antelope whitetail mule deer etc um for their red meat content intake and just just the satisfaction of not only eating it myself but providing enough to watching my kids like be nourished by this meat that I, you know, secured. And by the way, had a lot of fun doing it. Um, <laughs> it's really cool. So that I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think it's really cool. And like, yeah, I, I got pictures. Kids. Okay. I, I got pictures I of my have, little girl. Kids, like when, I get it from, I get it from teaching others. I get it yeah, from, yeah. from the holidays where somebody made one of my recipes for Christmas dinner or whatever. Yeah. And they're like, it was amazing. And like, that's, that's where I get that. Yeah. And, Speaking of the holidays, yeah, I've got like I got pictures of my little girl when she was like eighteen months old, like gnawing on a whitetail femur. <laughs> <laughs> my version of that, I've got a, I'm a, I have a picture of me as a toddler uh, shucking clams and eating them. <laughs> oh, nice, yeah, man, for sure. Um, so you know, as and you just mentioned the holidays too. Um, I, I we are I am wrapping it up, but um, is there a I know a lot of people right now specifically probably have you know some meat in the freezer. Um, we got holidays coming up, you know, family gatherings, celebrations. Is there a recipe or two that you would like on your website that you would point people to that is a you know a great holiday kind of share with the family kind of thing to do? Like where you can, you know, like maybe you got some cousins or uncles coming in that aren't hunters and you want to kind of open up the freezer and, and kind of impress everybody. What's the, what's something you would point them to? There's a lot. I mean, let's just, just stick with venison for the moment because I yeah. mean, we could talk about this for an hour. Um, I think I think the the a smoke roasted roast big piece of venison is never never a, a, a bad idea. Where you basically take a big roast and you put it in as a smoker and you and you pull it when the interior temperature hits medium rare, and then slice it like a roast beef and serve it. There is nobody who doesn't like that. Um, nice. and it's very accessible. It's very simple. And it's, it's, 
a great way to like people like, wow, this is amazing. This is this is pretty lean beef. I'm like, well, it's actually a deer. Uh, <laughs> the other one that is really very Christmassy, and uh, the recipe actually will post on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook on the 19th of December. So I'm cool. not entirely sure when this is going to run, but um, but on the 19th of December, I'm going to post my recipe for British mince pies. Ooh, so, good. like with a so pastry old, crust. Yes, old nice. school mincemeat pies are a Christmas tradition in the United Kingdom, and it's a mixture of dried fruits and a little sugar and and ground meat. And back in the day, that ground meat was venison, and it's in a like a pastry crust, and they're little, nice. and they are shockingly good, like shockingly good. Like most, <laughs> like you can see the mincemeat filling. They sell it in stores, and it's gross. It's like gefilte fish. Like, yeah. like gefilte fish is basically just a fish meatball. And if you make fish meatballs and serve it in a broth, it's amazing. But the the canned stuff is vile. Same yeah. thing with mincemeat. So that recipe is going to be yeah, canned meat. Just never really. Yeah, exactly. It's right. <laughs> so those are two good ones. Potted um, meat. I actually like homemade potted meat. But uh, yeah, homemade. That's different. I mean, I got friends that can bear meat and stuff like that. That's di- I'm talking about going to the store and getting like right. a jar of just mystery meat <laughs> the other one that is again it's this so the on the simple end is big roast on the complicated end um would probably be a, a terrine a holiday terrine um that? that's so you know what like have you ever had like a, a pate that wasn't liver like a regular like a rough pate I don't um, know. so Maybe. basically imagine like a fancy meatloaf kind of okay that's the yeah. general idea but but they can be extremely elaborate and the french are very good at it so the English and French and Germans to some extent will do lots of game. Uh, some of it's ground, some of it's just cut and it's got things like you'll have like little dried fruit and pistachios in it and you, and you cook it in a, in like a, almost like a, a bread loaf pan, uh, okay. really slow and gentle. And then you cut slices of it and you eat the slices with things like okay. pickles and mustard. Um, Don't they sometimes mold a, them into like fancy shapes or something? Yes. Yes, yeah. they do. Yeah. Yeah. And I have that. a terrine pan, which is, which is, specific to that but nice but that is a very very traditional christmas thing to do cool um and there's one other good one and uh for ducks and geese yeah and it's a german soup called ganze klein um in germany roast goose is what you eat for the holidays right and so this soup is made from the neck the wings the giblets Mm. um and it's basically stewed and with christmas spices and dried fruit again so it it sounds weird, but it's really amazing. And they usually put like a big semolina uh, flour dumpling in the center of it. And then good. so you eat the soup with the the dumpling and and uh, and it's just it's it's another thing that it doesn't sound like it should be good, but it's amazing. Yeah, most things that like don't sound good are like the best. It's like a CrossFit <laughs> workout. Like the ones that don't look that bad are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Like sometimes, yeah, like things are just like, that doesn't sound right. But those are the best things sometimes. But well, cool, man. Well, I know you got a ton of um, good like content on your website and um, and you have your own podcast, which is really cool. And I know that you also, I'm not, you just did or recently released uh, um, a class with outdoor mm-hmm. class from I go did. hunt I did. um so where can people find you know because we just like i said we just scratched the surface i do i would love to have it back on sometime but we just kind of scratched the surface here and kind of jumped all around and kept it conversational but if people really want to dive in and like you know learn some real good stuff and and do some where can they find your content 
I think the core of what I do is e- be easiest to find at huntgathercook.com. That is my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Um, I've been doing that since 2007, and there are damn near 2,000 recipes on it for wow. everything. Um, I'm very active on Instagram, where I'm also Hunt Gather Cook. Um, and I have the, the podcast is Hunt Gather Talk, and I have the new outdoor class, uh, and it's specifically for uh, venison. So it's a okay. This picks up once the deer's on the ground. So there's a little bit of butchering, and there's a lot of very, very bedrock basic. Uh, cooking in content on that outdoor class. And okay. if you go on that website and use the outdoor class and, and sign up and you use any, there's a coupon code for me, where if you use Shaw, my last name, S-H-A-W, mm-hmm. uh, you get 20% off. Nice. Well, I just, I was just picked up my phone cause I was uh, looking up on Instagram. Um, nice. 90, 90.3 thousand followers and you're verified. I, nice. <laughs> as Ron Burgundy would say. <laughs> yeah. Your office must smell like leather bound books and rich mahogany. <laughs> cool, I man. Ha- I actually have two of them behind me right now. But it's, That's no, awesome. It smells more like I have a dry ager in my office, so it smells like dry aging meat. Are, are, do you work with a photographer or are you taking these pictures on your Instagram? Uh, it's, uh, the Instagram pictures are 95% mine. Um, They're great. But the website pictures are all done by Holly Heiser. She's my okay. partner. Cool. These pictures are great too. So yeah, give him a follow, guys. Check him out on Outdoor Class and his website. It's got tons of stuff, man. Um, this has been awesome, man. Time flew by. Um, very interesting. Like I said, sorry, I kind of bounced around everywhere, but I just had so much I wanted to ask and I just kept going different directions. So yeah, like I said, like let's let's do another one in the like, next couple months and maybe sure. drill down on some specifics or or you know do something topical related or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. It was great talking to you, and I uh, hope you have a great holiday, man. You too. Merry Christmas. All right. Take it easy.